This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Matt Kelly, founder of The New European. If you like the New European podcast, you're going to love the New European newspaper. Unique content from people who love being European as much as you do. A different take on current affairs, bringing insight to untold stories from within our continent and explaining how they shape our lives. And page after page of fabulous arts and culture coverage from across Europe. It's witty, entertaining And when it drops through your letterbox each week, it's going to remind you that a strong pro-European community is alive and well in this country we love. It's on sale at newsagents every Thursday, but make sure you don't miss a copy by subscribing. We've got a special time-limited offer just now. Go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe and you get the newspaper delivered every week anywhere in the UK for just £10 a month. And you also get full access to our e-edition. You're going to love it. And you'll be supporting great journalism. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Hello, snowflakes, and welcome to the New European Podcast, a British eye on European politics, European culture, from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. You can subscribe to the New European at neweuropean.co.uk. For £10 a month, you get the printed and e-editions each week. The first 200 people to subscribe will get a signed copy of the latest volume of Alistair Campbell's Fascinating Diaries. Uh, serialised in, in the paper again this week. My name is Steve Anglesey. Here I am wrapped up in the Union Jack this week and I'm ready to talk flags with James Ball. And also someone whose pieces for the New European are always fascinating. The science writer and debunker Tracy King will be joining me to talk about the future of instant translation. Useful if we ever get uh, to go back to Europe, you'd have thought. First of all, here's James Ball, the global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, Pulitzer Prize winner, author of 
post-truth, bluffocracy, the system, all-round fancy guy, James Ball. Thank you for joining us. And modest with it too. Thanks for having me. <laughs> oh, it's always a pleasure and never a chore. But what I really need to know, James, is how many flags are behind you while you're while you're speaking to us all now, and how how massive are they? So, well, you know, as a long-standing new European columnist, I am, of course, wearing a European flag, and uh, I have a burning Union uh, Union Jack at my feet. So, <laughs> I, I really should stress uh, for if this goes out, that is a joke. <laughs> yeah. I've never exactly. burned a flag in my life, and as far as I'm aware, they're flame resistant. So you I know. think they are flame yeah. retardant, as has been proved by numerous YouTube funny, very funny YouTube <laughs> videos. Um, your piece in the New European this week is is titled "What's Behind Our Flag Fixation," and in it, you are quite rightly wondering why, when there is. I think there's quite a bit of news going on in the world now. There seems to be something quite big, doesn't there? But every day there seems to be a new news story about flags. And I kind of, I don't really know whether to laugh or cry about this. At once to me it seems quite comedic. At once it seems quite sinister. And it just sort of adds to the, the general vibe of uh, Great Britain as, um, as as sort of a weird episode of Dad's Army in which Captain Mannering tries to set up a dictatorship in Walmington-on-Sea. Where, where did all this flag stuff emanate from, do you think? What And what are some of those stories that you're talking about from the last few weeks? Um, I mean, you know, the stories are so, so relentless. Um, you had the sort of BBC breakfast uh, presenters. Um, yes sort of make a joke about the size of the flag in the background of uh, of a minister after an interview. Um, and it was her male co-host that made the joke, but uh, Naga Manchetti sort of laughed at it. And uh, inexplicably, for some reason, can't put a finger on why, but people gravitated on her for this terrible sin of making a mild joke about a minister having a smaller flag than his colleague as well. It wasn't even mocking the fact of it. Every bloody minister now, even at a home interview, seems to have a full flagstaff. Uh, and, you know, an outdoor flag clearly intended for a huge building behind them. Um, but that set that set off a bit of a row, which was sort of silly enough to start with. But then 17 MPs wrote to the Director General over it. Um, said Director General Tony Hall was then giving evidence in Parliament and got uh, told to make sure there was more than one Union Jack, Union flag, whichever you prefer. It's only the Union Jack and flown at sea. Um, <laughs> you know, way just like, I, I, I do not want to end up a, a victim of the flag discourse. Um, you know, make sure there's more than one in next year's annual report. Um, it's now there's been a decree that's gone out that all UK government buildings will fly the flag every day. And it's sort of on one level, who cares? Like, I, I quite like seeing a flag over a building. You know, I'm, I'm a gay guy. I like it when during Pride, I see the rainbow flag on government buildings. So I, if they if they like the flag, good for them. You know, wear a flag pin. Good for you. Um what I think the reason it becomes sort of cringeworthy is it feels like what happens when a lot of very expensively educated old Etonians uh, try and work out what Northerners want. And as far as, you know, as far as I'm aware, they sort of seem to think 
it's hating foreigners, sipping warm bitter, wearing a flat cap and uh, talking about the Union Jack all the time. And like having grown up in terrace houses in Halifax, that's only about 20% true. (laughs) It turns out the North has arts, culture, gays, non-white people, and also lives in the 21st century. We've even got the internet up there. Um, But it feels like they're sort of in a really naff way trying to appeal to some imaginary working class that sort of is is as obsessed with flags as the discourse has become. Um, it's it's all it is all very odd, isn't it? I mean, I, I've heard the Tory MPs that you are talking about uh, in the last few days saying that people in this country are putting up flags more often than they used to and the people are putting up national flags county flags and the union flag i heard a flag maker on the today program uh, the other day saying he's selling more flags before in the last couple of um in the last couple of weeks i've, I've been moving my son back to university so i've actually been out of i've taken walks in in, in three different places which is remarkable in in these times, I, I still don't see a great number of flags waving outside. Do you think people actually care about flags as much as these people say we do? I mean, no, I just don't. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I am reporting here from the People's Republic of Islington, and uh, you may be surprised to hear there's not all that many there, you know, but. No, I mean, when you go to Cornwall, you see a lot of flags. Yeah, Cornish flag. You know, if you live in Northern Ireland, flags are a pretty sensitive issue for you. If you sort of grow up in various bits of Scottish football, it's a thing. But I've not yet met anyone who actually, like, who's a normal, real person who cares all that much about this. I think they would care if you were going to do a rule banning the British flag or something like that, but no one's proposing that because it would be mad. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting, isn't it, when the census comes out, which we've all been dutifully filling in, because, you know, then, we'll, then we will see how many people class themselves as British primarily, European primarily, English primarily. Um, it's it, it just does seem... Uh, it does seem all very odd because I, I you know, I, I don't de- detect that there is the tremendous amount of patriotism and love of the flag that there is that you see in in some other countries. But obviously, we've seen this. It started with the flags at the daily briefings, didn't it? Then everybody, as you say, every minister who was on Zoom from their home or from Matt Hancock in his broom cupboard seemed to have a flag behind them. And now we've got the the flag, you know, which must be flown from from all public buildings, and it's weird, isn't it? Because it was the, the last Tory manifesto, which was only in twenty nineteen, the end of twenty nineteen, sixty four pages long, many photos in it, many illustrations in it, including on the last page, there's a, a big picture of some working class looking chaps holding up a homemade <laughs> sign that says "We Love Boris." They're all in hard hats. <laughs> the red wall. There's not one photo of a union flag in there. <laughs> it's amazing. Isn't it's it? amazing. Who who is who has decided that this is a, a, a thing to to push? Do you think? I think it's got to have come from some sort of electoral strategy somewhere. Um, 
And it only sort of works because there is a mad subset of Labour that is going to go, if you like the Union Jack, you are endorsing empire and hate brown people. Or, you know, if if you've ever once sort of gone, I like the Queen, then you are, you know, the worst racist in history. You know, the little fringe sort of cancel squad who are so determined to make even the most inane statements controversial and have a political cost for Labour. It just means that, oddly, Corbynism is extending beyond Corbyn in terms of stuff that should just be really boring and easy for a Labour leader actually isn't at the moment. Mm. And when you've got, you know, let's be honest, something of a waste of oxygen in the space, you know, a man who you sort of feel like if you thought he needed the loo, he'd check with a focus group first <laughs> and then he could go. Um, it feels like somehow they're managing to make this really tedious stuff a wedge issue when basically no one's on the other side of it. So, yeah. you know, and so it does feel quite deliberately tactical. Um, but I think it's quite new. And the odd thing is, I think quite a lot of the people, some of them mean it and like it and, you know, fine. A lot of them are almost as naff as it is when, you know, Ed Miliband got asked, you know, what do you think when you see a house with three England flags on? And he's sort of clearly fishing desperately and found pride, uh, you know, with the expression of a man who's swallowed his own goldfish. Um, you know, Boris is a complete internationalist. He can't help but feel he knows it's deeply naff, but just thinks it's funny. <laughs> yes. It's uh, it's it's definitely a, a stick to, to beat Labour with, and there's a, there's a, an interesting statistic in your piece that said that even the people who you know, looking at those who voted Labour, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour in 2017, 52 percent had a favourable view of people who flew the Union flag at home versus 26 percent who didn't. Yeah, um, I mean, I've got to say, I would think it's a bit weird, but not because it's the Union flag, just why are you flying a flag at home? Like, an England flag outside your window during a World Cup, that I get. But I don't, I wouldn't, you know, I'd be a bit nonplussed. I think I'd be in the don't know category here. But yeah, most people actually feel pretty okay about Britain. They like a bit of patriotism. They like the stiff upper lip idea. It's not controversial, but... It's just so weird that we end up having to talk about it and we end up sort of having these discussions because it ends up getting merged with lots of sort of more difficult thoughts about sort of nationalism and ethno-nationalism, which is on the rise in quite a lot of places, uh, including a lot of Europe, um, and actually doesn't so far seem to be on big increase here and so it's quite weird that at a time where we should be sort of opposing nationalism we're instead venting these very strange patriotic debates and as I try and sort of discuss in a piece I can't work out whether this serves as a pressure valve and lets us have a fairly harmless discussion of these things or whether it risks you know this little bit of political opportunism risks dragging us into this much more dangerous set of politics. Yes, I mean it is. I think opportunism is is the the thing, isn't it? Because you know, one there is a, a slight there is the prodding of the the the, the labour left and the, the people who um, 
the people who, who the Daily Telegraph think are woke and hate Britain. And two, there is the there is the I guess you know we're we're, we're heading towards May the sixth. We're heading towards elections in Scotland. I wonder if the Union Jack is really something that is going to make people who were about to vote SNP and then vote for independence in an Indie Ref too. Is it, I wonder if that's you know going to make them say actually I really quite like the look of the Union Jack with the with the blue in it. Let's uh, we'll, 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 have to, we'll have to stay in there. Is there, there's something about Scottish nationalism in this, isn't there? Um, yeah, I mean, firstly, I do think waving this Britishness, 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 Union flag, Union flag, Union flag, it's probably got to boost the SNP vote. Yeah. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon must be incredibly grateful because it's looked for a little while, it's looking like she might not get an overall majority, which would make the government's life hugely easier on Scottish independence. And instead, they seem to be doing everything they can to try and get her that majority back. Um, which is sort of nonsensical. But I think the SNP in Scotland end up in an interesting place on this, as they're a nationalist party, and some of their history is a lot closer to other nationalist parties than the SNP would like you to remember. You know, they do not have an unproblematic past when it comes to racism. And they've done a lot better in recent years of trying to sort of form an inclusive kind of nationalism, a sort of sense of, you know, if you choose to be Scottish, you're Scottish, Um, which is a sort of interesting progressive vision. And, you know, is it possible to be progressive and nationalist? Except I'm not sure it actually is. And there was a sort of slightly odd comment sort of thrown at um, Fraser Nelson, um, where there was, you know, I'm sure many listeners on the pod not a fan of his, but an SNP um, politician sort of said, well, it takes more than being born in Scotland to be Scottish. Um, And that starts sort of getting to a a slightly creepy version of events where you're picking your people. And then if you start taking nationalism seriously, if it's not just about sports teams and flags and a national trait or two, you were essentially saying the people of your country are better than the people of other countries. And then you start getting into a creepy question of, well, why, how, what, you know, what makes that group distinction? And so I think intrinsically there's something quite uncomfortable about nationalism that the SNP are quite good at glossing over, but don't quite escape. Um, And so I'm not quite sure how the UK sort of waving around a patriotic flag that a lot of Scots have not particularly felt strongly about for a while and sort of making this culture war headache. It's got to do anything to stave off what could in the long run turn into an actual nationalist issue. It's, it's, I mean, it's just such a, a strange and uncomfortable thing, isn't it? And, you know, going back to what you were saying at at the top, you know, I I don't, I wouldn't have a, a flag, a union flag outside my house, or any other kind of flag, because I think it's a bit weird, and I don't want people to think that I'm somebody who likes Oasis or anything like that. <laughs> um, I mean, that's the real hazard, isn't it? Or I'm a prospective Tory MP. I think that you know that's kind of putting me off. But but then when I go to southern Sweden, where my dad used to live, 
and people have got flags and they've got the flag of the county scorner and they've got the, the national flag outside the house. It's quite nice, isn't it? And it's, it's also quite nice. Remember in the days when we could go places, when you fly into JFK and then you get a taxi through that bit of Queens and there's, you know, very small houses, clearly people with not a lot of money, but they've got beautifully neat stars and stripes flags outside their house. And they, you know, there's, there seems to be a, an element of, you know, well, I haven't got much, but at least I belong to all of this. Yeah. Um, I feel like they can choose to do it and it brings them a bit of joy. It's nice. You know, I remember um, pride a few years ago and uh, I was yeah. sort of down in rainbow fades paint and wearing a rainbow flag. And it was the same day as the, England were playing in a quarterfinal and you kept running into people wearing England flags and everyone was sort of high-fiving each other and praising each other's outfits and all of this. It was properly lovely. And, you know, it, it's one of those where you think 30 years ago, a bunch of football fans bump, bump into a bunch of pride people, there's got to be a problem. It was just a really nice day and everyone really enjoying their kind of tribal identities. It can be good. It's just when you sort of wave it around and try and kind of go... Does my flag trigger you? Are you scared of this flag? It just makes you think, oh, for fuck's sake, go home. You know, it just makes you think you've been served one too many. Well, if only that was if only that was possible <laughs> at the moment. Um, finally, before uh, before I let you go, I've got a couple of polls in the last two days. One showing a Tory lead of two, BMG, then a Tory lead of nine, YouGov. I mean, I'm not sure the flag thing is moving any dials. Is this still all about vaccine euphoria? Is it about Boris Johnson versus Keir Starmer? What does it all mean for May the 6th when, you know, everybody is, more or less everybody is, is going to have a vote of some kind or other? It's, it's, um, it's a lot harder to oppose in a crisis than armchair critics think because yes. if you go too hard... Uh, you end up sounding like you're cheering on the disease. Um, and so if you end up just offering constructive suggestions and trying to be helpful, you end up sort of sounding like you're tinkering at the margins, which Kia has. And then as you get out of the crisis, people are in a good mood. You know, we'll be able to do outdoor pub by election day. You know, half the population, half the adult voting population will have been vaccinated it's quite hard to sort of go against a feel-good factor. Um, and so I think the Tories, are they'll probably overall lose a few council seats, but not very many. And for a party that's been in government for 11 years, that's a win. But I will go out on a, a limb and make a very big and bold prediction, which is that I think Sadiq Khan will still be mayor of London. This is uh, incredible. So, you know, you heard it here first. But a slightly, slightly bolder prediction is I think that the Conservatives will keep the West Midlands and the, um, oh gosh, the it's not Northumbria, is it? Where, where am I thinking? The Northeast Mayorship. Uh, the, Tracy, the Tracy Brabin one. No, uh, she'll win that. Yes, um, I think she'll win that, yeah. The, the Teesside one. Um, yeah. Not least because they're incredibly crude about their bribes up to the Northeast. <laughs> Uh, the clever tactic would be we care about the North East, even though you voted in a Labour MP, it's the Tories who've got this new investment into your seat. That'll win them more Northern seats. Going, <laughs> we're giving Teesside everything because they voted right. F you, everyone else. Um, like, you know, 
they're so transparent. They, they're sort of there's easy wins for them, and they manage to sort of turn it into government by Delvoy. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's James Ball. Uh, you can read his piece, uh, our, our newfound flag fixation, in this week's issue of the New European. Thank you, James. Always a pleasure. Uh, subscribe to the New European at theneweuropean.co.uk. £10 a month gets you the e-edition. It gets you the printed edition each week. The first 200 to subscribe get a signed copy of the latest volume of Alistair Campbell's diaries. And we will be back in a second with Tracy King. Back with the New European podcast. Um, some of you have uh, have been commenting on Facebook about the flag issue that we were discussing with James there. Nicola Dodds says, why would I have a flag? It's not as though I need one to remind me where I am in case I get a weird feeling that I'm in Ecuador. That's a good point. Maggie Clark says, flags are for ceremonial occasions. Why would you want to fly, fly one at home? Barbara Westhead says, I don't need to fly a flag. I know I'm British and European through and through. I'm proud to be both. Jackie Philby says, I'll never uh, fly a flag. I won't support creeping nationalism. Robbie Brewster, uh, he says, flags are a medieval symbol of tribalism. David Riley says, uh, in America, we were talking about that. It's the custom to show patriotism by flying the flag in England. It should only be uh, flown by the monarch, the government and the armed forces. David Pym says uh, flag flying is a sign of petty nationalism, insecurity. Eva Lambert says, I don't like any flags, fences or cliques. Sooner we understand we are all one. Uh, we can start to heal the planet. Um, some more of those later on. Uh, several of you uh, are expressing concern about flying a European flag outside your houses, which uh, which is, I think, falls into the category of sad but true and where we are right now. Now, uh, I'm delighted to be joined by someone whose piece in the New European are always fascinating. It's Tracy King, the science writer and debunker. Tracy wrote about long COVID for us a couple of weeks ago. She's currently writing in a memoir, uh, Learning to Think. Well, you can tell us what that's about, Tracy King, and uh, and then we can discuss your piece in um, in this week's New European. Hello, hello. Um, well, my memoir, Learning to Think, is uh, it's about learning to think. So. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, that was Tracy King, everyone. Yeah, it's, it's a short read. It's just the title. <laughs> um it's kind of about um, how I grew up on a Birmingham council estate and had a, a, a sort of traumatic childhood and stopped going to school when I was 12. Uh, stopped going to school regularly when I was 12. Didn't really have any formal education, so to speak of. Uh, and went through all sorts of interesting and odd belief systems from religions to conspiracy theories to Eastern mysticism uh, in, in pursuit of what I thought were the answers. And then... Um, accidentally stumbled upon actual science which was sort of new to me um and uh and became a, a critical thinker and debunker and uh, ended up sort of spending my career and my life working with some of the biggest names in science and making um science animations and writing about science so yeah it's kind of that journey how you could go from believing in everything into uh into being pro-science 
That is sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, I mean, you've written this week uh, in this week's newspaper about how technology it claims to be closing in on making instant in-ear translation services a reality. What I want to know, though, really, before we, we, we dig into that, is since I've just been talking to James Ball about patriotism and national pride, is how many flags are behind you right now? <laughs> is there a massive flagpole outside your house? Um, yes, there's an Aston Villa flag outside my house, <laughs> <as> to speak. <laughs> uh, there's, there's a second one uh, saying... Um, Tracy King lives here. And this is the thing, right? What, I'm pro-flag. More flags. Everyone gets a flag. We can design our own flag. You know, like you have your avatar on Twitter. Yes. Right? Why, why not f- go big? Go flag or go home, right? <laughs> get, get your own flag made proudly. And then when you die, they can half-mast your flag. Oh. Right? This is why, why flags for everybody. I'm, I'm all for it. That's how we would tell. Yeah, <laughs> that's how that's how we'd know. I like, I do, I do like a flag. I've got to say, there are many good flags, aren't there? And I don't like those flags that people hold up at Glastonbury or at large musical events that, that block your view of the of the, the stage. But are those know. flags technically? I don't know. Are they? I, are although they? I suppose, in a way, like I was thinking, like T-shirts with bands on and logos on, that's just like a wearable flag, really. It is a bit of a flag, yeah. It's showing yeah. what tribe you belong to in the way that the flag used to be, I, I, I suppose. Um, yeah, so we could just, you could just, you could repurpose that, put a, you know, put your your Guns N' Roses T-shirt on a pole, <laughs> stick it in your garden. Why not, man? Why not? Because it says a lot about the person that lives there, doesn't it? The flag. It, it very much so. <laughs> very much so. We're we very careful here, but it does. Yes, I think so. We're, we're straight into Emily Thornberry territory there, aren't we? <laughs> oh, no, look at that. I won't be. I won't be expecting your vote with your Black Sabbath T-shirt out. <laughs> which, uh, which there would be many of in your neck of the woods. I would imagine. That is, that is absolutely right. Uh, now, I mean, Britain's like to travel they are very keen to do so um something that would help because we're not very we, we like to go places but we don't like to learn the language do we, we we're lagging way behind most of western europe in that in my experience Correct. so people are very excited about the prospects of these devices that offer in-ear translation and it was was it douglas adams who first came up with this idea or did he did douglas adams just popularize it um, I mean, you know, the idea of universal translation has been kicking around for a long time. So before Douglas Adams, there was Star Trek. Obviously, there was Star Trek. You know, it, tell me you've seen Star Trek. I have seen Star Trek. It's the one with the Wookiees in it, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right. We're coming at this in very different nerd directions. <laughs> All right. So in, in Star Trek, they had a, a universal translator um, for... You know, plot reasons, obviously, if you land on another planet and there's an alien species, uh, it makes for very poor television to just have, you know, nobody understand each other. The end. Um, so so they uh, so the technology and, you know, original Star Trek sort of invented tele technology that inspired a lot. So, you know, the original Motorola flip phone was inspired by the the tricorder device that uh, that Captain Kirk, you know, sort of made cool. Um, and within that device, uh, you know, he could 
get beamed up, but also it was a universal translator. So whatever any alien said. Um, Could be heard. I just thought the aliens all spoke English. Well, and <laughs> American English, yes, <laughs> which is... Which is an interesting vision of the future. Um, and so the, um, and we are getting really nerdy now, I must apologise. So my favourite, but the least popular Star Trek series is Enterprise, um, which is a more modern incarnation uh, of Enterprise, but it's actually a, a prequel. And so they have the character invent the universal translator sort of software um during that show so in between those two uh iterations of star trek you know douglas adams fell in between the two right uh, okay. in the, the 60s and the 2000s so in the 80s he wrote hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and he came up with the babel fish which was really a long-winded way to say that god doesn't exist um by basically saying that the the babel fish is sort of is proof that god exists because uh it's it's too it's too good otherwise um and if you prove god exists um because proof denies faith god ex- uh, disappears in a puff of logic uh, that's the douglas adams tells that way better than i do <laughs> <laughs> but if you've not read hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy by now you know just go and do that and then and then come back um so uh, yeah so it's basically it's a fish that you that you put in your ear uh, and uh, it sort of psychically eats your brain waves, the, the part that's responsible for language processing, and then poops out more waves that translate what you're hearing, <laughs> which is a crude. It's a it's a crude invention, um, but um, you know the idea there is really what the technology would like to aim for, which is instantaneous translation so you hear something and your earpiece that you're wearing will instantly translate it into your ear without any kind of you know third party intervention without a screen in front of you without any kind of checking so that is kind of where the technology is trying to get to that point to invent you know an earbud version of of the babel fish albeit like you know not a not an actual not an actual fish (laughs) we are i mean we're we're edging towards this thing, aren't we? But and and, and I've got to say, you know, we, we've the last few weeks we've introduced a new column into the newspaper. It's called Mondo Europe, which I've put together, and it is sort of weird stories from around the world. This week we're talking, of, you know, we've got the story from Paris about the, the police announced a seizure of a million euros worth of uh, MDMA, uh, which has turned out to be Haribo sweets. <laughs> Uh, and it's not that there is stuff like that in it and it has been made it's been made possible by google translate obviously however um i was lucky enough to slip out of the country in between lockdowns i went to we, we went to turin for a week and my italian is really poor um because of uh, the uh, lack of interest in languages that we discussed earlier on and and so i i invested in a fancy iphone app which you know, I was. It was billed as it would be able to trans instantly translate menus, and if people talked into it, it would give me a translation. It it, it didn't work as billed. I've got to say, it was really well reviewed. It didn't work as billed. It did not really work at all. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I mean, the, the the mistake you've made there um, yes. is, is trying to use it while having a regional accent. 
Yeah. Um, so that that's a factor. It's not the factor because there are some of those apps that you can train, um, you know, to recognize your accent a bit better. But what regional accents often are is shortcut to a type of spoken English that is not the, you know, received pronunciation of a newsreader Um or, I mean, the Queen is a bad example, really, because nobody actually talks like the Queen. Um, but, you know, these apps are trained on a, a formal English um, that people like you and me don't actually speak. <laughs> so, so what, you know, to, to use them, you have to homogenise your language, um, which, you know, and you, you have to sort of put on a bit of a BBC voice. Mm. Um, if you are a woman because most of these AIs are trained on male um, voice data if you're a woman oftentimes it doesn't pick up the the higher register so you have to lower your voice particularly with um, voice control for cars and things like that it really helps if you if if you have a higher voice if you lower your voice Um, yeah so you have to sort of translate in your head into the English that the app understands before you say it Um, that said it's still incredibly impressive that we're uh, you know we're so far ahead of um you know where in the 80s when Douglas Adams came up with the with the Babelfish you know I don't I I remember thinking that would have been impossible technology you know I didn't envisage um AI or any kind of intelligent enough translation um but currently there's no way of doing that without a device in between you that shows you the text so you confirm that that's what you said mm. um, unlike the Babel fish which is just an in-ear thing uh, there is no current in-ear device that you could reliably translate via because you have no way of confirming that what you just said is what the app translated right so you have to have that third party screen in front of you and you say uh, you know hello can I have a baguette and the app says, hello, can I have a baguette? And then it'll read out in French, you know. Uh, I, I do know that in French, but I'm too embarrassed to do it because my French accent is, is dark. <laughs> um, so you need to be able to confirm that the app definitely knows what you said. Otherwise, there would be all sorts of <laughs> all sorts of sticky situations in which you, you've got something other than a baguette. Um, and, and so that's the next step, really, is getting the the AI the you know the learning side of things sophisticated enough that it doesn't need that third party confirmation that screen to say you know yes that's definitely what I said and when you watch the ear the adverts for the earpieces that are available the examples that they use it's very um slowly spoken very Mm general English so there's no colloquialisms there's no slang there's no room for misinterpretation in the examples and so of course the translation can be perfect um but that's not how we speak you know that it's how it's how you speak to a translator but that's not how you converse um so there's a there's a long 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 way to go and one of the difficulties with that is that the technology industry in particular is a bit uh dominated by one particular demographic uh and anyone who's read caroline criado perez's book invisible women mm. will know they forget that <laughs> that the rest of us exist so you know working class colloquialisms 
don't get included because that's not in the data set that it gets trained on. And even if it was, you know, the difference between a Brummie and a black country, you know, accent is huge. And so is the slang. You know, I, I can I can have a conversation with somebody from Liverpool and not really know what the heck they're saying, you know, and likewise. And I code switch a little bit. You know, I'm in Birmingham at the moment. I, I live uh, I live in Birmingham and London. And when I'm in London, you know, I've got a slightly a slightly posher accent and I don't say in it at the end of sentences. And I don't use bromeisms because I know that people don't know what I'm saying. And then I come back to Birmingham and I slip into what is my natural mode of speaking, you know. So I'm a, a translator is currently not sophisticated enough to figure out what <laughs> actually I'm speaking two different types of English. And I don't know, you know, and there's no equivalent in Italian for whatever it is, that, you know. I just called someone a Mardi cow, you know. <laughs> What's the Italian for that? There isn't one. Maybe we need to. Maybe we need a Birmingham to London in here trans, instant translator before we before we march on um, Italy and Bulgaria and, and everywhere else. Well, I'm, this is the thing, and that's the point I make in the article: is that what we need yes. first is an English to English translator. You know, a, a, a normal person's English to a you know a newsreader's English. That's what we need. Um, you, you've written so many great pieces for us, and you described yourself at the start as a as a debunker yes um one piece that we, we were talking about on email earlier on which of yours which i really enjoyed which is quite i think it's two or three years old now was about uh it was a, a time when paper straws were becoming a uh all we had to worry about in those days tracy was paper straws it was <laughs> The it halcyon like, days. It's like a, a, a time of ambrosia and uh, it was just wonderful, wasn't it? And <laughs> um, So I guess what, what was that piece about? But, but first, what is, what is a science debunker? What, what are the kind of things that, you, that, that, you, that a science debunker does? So, you know, the, the most important thing to stress is that I'm not a, a scientist. Um, and indeed, a, a debunker kind of shouldn't be a scientist because oftentimes it's scientists that I am debunking um I mean essentially I am that well actually person right I'm that person but right. people pay me to do that so for a living somebody will say you know red wine causes cancer and I will go well actually <laughs> but I mean I'm like that as a person but um you know there, there's a there's a a, a danger in bad headlines, misleading science, science that's been, you know, misappropriated uh, or science that's just done badly in the first place. Uh, then there's pseudoscience, which is stuff that looks like science, but isn't. Uh, and the general public uh, quite often aren't sort of science literate enough to know the difference. Um, you know, techno babble, um, things like, um alternative medicine tend to fall into that category where you know they're trying to sell something that doesn't by any scientific standard work but they'll come up with some plausible sciencey sounding explanation often using the word quantum and a lot of people think oh well that sounds sciencey so it must be legitimate um yeah so the the debunker's job is to point at what the actual facts are um quite often the the truth is nobody knows 
uh, and, and a lot of people don't like that. They're not satisfied with nobody knows. They want a hard, this definitely works or this definitely doesn't work. And a lot of things just simply don't fit into that category. So because of that, it could be a, a, a thankless <laughs> task. You know, if somebody comes to me and, and says, you know, um, a friend on a forum for chronic illness has recommended this, you know, does it work? And I quite often I have to go back to them and say, you know, you know, no one knows. Uh, the studies that have been done don't prove it works, but that doesn't prove it doesn't work. <laughs> so, and so, yeah, so I kind of my job as a writer is to is to do that in an engaging way, um, you know, which is why I like to use humour, because it's a hard sell to say to somebody that thing that you believe in or that thing that was giving you hope doesn't work. I'm really sorry. Uh, you know, that. It doesn't get you invited to many parties. So you have to approach it in a bit more of a, a human, empathic uh, way. Just um, just explain extremely briefly, or as well, I mean, as succinctly as, as is possible then, why um, the, the, uh, the, the massive, what's it called, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Yes. Uh, which is a big sort of conglomerate of rubbish isn't it that just floats around in the in the north pacific that isn't made up entirely of plastic straws is it no Um, it's plastic straws and flags and every yes that's right and and every time we we throw away a plastic straw it doesn't necessarily go up the nose of a, a sea turtle yeah i mean so plastic straws are totems right and there's nothing wrong with that if if railing against plastic straws or, you know, so there was a viral picture of, of the turtle, as you, as you mentioned, if that makes people think about single use plastics, then that's great. Right. We, should, we, yes. we need those little learning moments. We need the thing that, that tickles our empathy, um, you know, and if that's the turtle with the plastic straw, the difficulty with that is some people will just zone in on that and go, Oh, right. The, the plastic straw in the turtle doesn't represent the entire waste management and single-use plastic problem. It represents literally plastic straws in the noses of turtle. That's the problem I'm going to fix and nothing else, right? That That's where you have an issue because, you know, plastic, single-use plastic straws, uh, they're, they're, they're fine as a, you know, the alternatives are poor for a lot of people's uses. You know, people with disabilities often have issues using... Um, paper straws uh single use straws can be very unhygienic you know the um sorry multiple use straws the ones that you wash the bamboo ones and the metal ones you know that's not hygienic and i wouldn't use one of those in a cafe if if we're ever allowed to go back to a cafe um you know and paper straws are are, well they they are garbage you know they if you nurse your drink for long enough, they they just collapse into a soggy mess. You know, so there's no good straw alternative. That said, plastic straws are, they're a good emblem, like a flag, they're a good emblem of <laughs> of something. Um, and that something is, is that we generate too much waste. When I say we, I don't mean an individual in McDonald's having a drink through a plastic straw. I mean, industry, I mean, households, uh, retailers you know the country um well the world really generates too much plastic waste um the, one of the biggest culprits um of ocean plastic pollution is the fishing industry yes. uh, so yeah so the, the the great pacific garbage patch as you mentioned half of that is from the fishing industry 
Um, so, you know, if you eat less fish, you're doing similar to using paper straws, but people don't want to eat less fish. It's because <laughs> like, we don't use straws that often. It's an easy swap to make. We don't want to make the big lifestyle changes that would send a message to the fishing industry. We don't want to think about the fact that most of the plastic pollution from our own houses is not from us throwing away single use plastics. It's from the fact that our waste management infrastructure is so poor that loads of it just flies away in the wind and invariably, because of the way the wind works, ends up at the coast and in the sea. So if you stuff something into an already overflowing bin, uh, you know, the council haven't emptied the bin forever. Most of that, you know, anything that can get caught by the wind, it will eventually end up in the sea. Um, And so then you have to say, all right, I want to lobby the council to empty the bins more often. And then you're that person who's lobbying the council to, who wants to be that person? Like, (laughs) you know, down the town hall with a, (laughs) just, you know, it's boring. It's infrastructure. It's, it, it feels petty because you have to be that, you know, that stick in the mud person who's saying, well, yes, we can all individually do more to cut down our plastic waste, but actually these are massive waste management infrastructure problems um, and we need to put pressure on them. And that's not anything one individual can do particularly successful. So we just don't bother. Um, and so instead we just go, oh, McDonald's have swapped their straws out. I feel better now. You know, <laughs> saved a turtle, job done. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of what my angle was, was, all right, here's, here's the actual fact. Here's what size of problem straws are. They're not zero, but in the grand scheme of things, they're, they're as close to zero as, as you know any other single product that you might want to point out. Um, if you actually care about this issue, here's the things that you should be looking at. Um, you know, uh, I like to think that article has single-handedly fixed the ocean uh, pollution <laughs> plastic issue, um, but uh, um, it hasn't. <laughs> Nothing has happened. <laughs> there's there's new technology all the time um and i've not kept that up to date with it because you know there's been a lot going on the past year (laughs) so i've had to sort of put aside my interest in in plastic pollution technology uh for a little bit um but i do strongly believe that that you know consumers can drive that sort of change and um you know if people started i don't know if you remember back in the 90s maybe a little bit later than that everybody started going mad about dolphin yes uh, tuna tuna were were catching dolphins and it only takes you know one one sad dolphin for everybody to be up in arms about that and now even now tuna cans will boast you know dolphin friendly or dolphin safe tuna um because it made such an impact you know people really really cared um and you know it's becoming the same with palm oil in uh peanut butter and things like that you know if if enough consumers make a noise um then then companies will shift so you know, if 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 people start demanding plastic pollution free fish, um, you know, the, that that would help. Um, I mean, the, you know, the, the difficulty is you've got to say to people, you know, just making a very minor shift that doesn't involve you really doing anything isn't actually doing anything. Um Yes, that's right. Yeah, and who wants to hear that? We've, we've, you know, who among us? We want, we want an instant, we want instant translation, and we want instant solutions, and we want them in our ears now, don't we? Um, well, uh, yeah, and you know, so a friend of mine was 
is very um, conscientious about recycling plastic. You know, she washes her plastic and she puts it in the bin. And I had to say to her, Britain doesn't, we don't recycle our own plastic. <laughs> uh what we do is uh we send it away <laughs> and we don't really pay much attention to what happens to it after that um so china would just go give us your plastic we'll have it they no longer do that uh, as far as i know um we were sending it to turkey malaysia and some of that plastic is just going straight to landfill um you know so you can be conscientious your end but what you're trusting is is a system and an infrastructure that doesn't give it does not doing what you know what you think you've been promised um well at least it's washed when it goes in the landfill at least it's a tidy <laughs> landfill <laughs> i think that i think the solution to this and i'll just um i don't know whether you could hear that before but i just i just saw a i, I had a notification for a for a uh, from Adidas who want to sell me a new version of Stan Smith, the Stan Smith trainer, which is a great training shoe, um, and it's made the upper is made of recycled plastic bottle tops. So I like that. I think the solution to all of this is that we take all the plastic straws and the um, and the giant garbage uh, pale kids floating. <laughs> in the ocean and we recycle it all into union jack flags yes those plastic ones that you got on uh <laughs> on football days the um so <laughs> the uh the, the most important thing you can do if you are if you're anything like me and i only learned this today i learned this this morning um is if you have old lego Ooh. wash it in fact you don't even need to wash it just bag it up and go onto the Lego website and they will give you a free post address and you send it to Lego and they will clean it up and they will give it to uh, charities for kids who don't have Lego. And if they can't use it, then they will grind it down into plastic bits and use it to make more Lego. That's amazing. Isn't that great? That is great. More of that. More of that, please. And hopefully more uh, Tracy King in, in future podcasts. That was an absolute pleasure. Um, you can read Tracy's piece on instant translation devices in this week's issue of The New European. If you go to The New European uh, website, you can find other pieces by Tracy, including the, the paper and plastic straw uh, thing we've just been talking about now. Uh, do subscribe to the New European at the neweuropean.co.uk for £10 a month. You get the printed edition, the e-edition each week. First 200 new subscribers will get a signed copy of the latest volume of Alistair Campbell's Diaries. Uh, Tracy King, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Tracy King there. She will be back on the New European podcast. I promise you that. Uh, some more of your comments about flags then uh, jim forbes ritter says i don't mind our flag it's ours it's part of who we are when we're on the world stage but we're not really flags on houses people uh really i would be tempted to fla- fashion an atreides banner i think that is uh that's june i think um as you will have learned from my chat with tracy king um i am not massively science fiction uh, related but uh, but there you go um Ben Stock says, uh, I would only have a flag outside my house if England are playing, and then it would be St George's Cross emblazoned with the Sports Direct and Carlsberg logos. Um, Lots of people, if you do fly flags, uh, Janet Cowan says, 
I fire flag, it's the EU flag. Kirsty Turnbull says, I do fire flag. It's currently a Scottish saltire with yes two on it. Uh, I also have a saltire with EU stars on it. Jodie Massey uh, says uh, she has a Welsh flag. Everything looks better with a massive dragon on it. Uh, Margaret Roblin says... If I had to fly a flag, it would be the Red Dragon of Wales, followed by the EU flag. Uh, no Union Jack here. Bob Sugden flies a Northumbrian flag representative um, of the land north of the Humber up to Edinburgh. Um, several of you, I, I mentioned this. Peter Geel says, I don't fly a flag because I don't want to alienate many of those passing by or visiting my house. Peter Wilton, we... We had a few of these. Peter said, I would consider the flag of the Council of Europe were it not for the fact that I have listed windows with bow-shaped glass that would cost in excess of a £1,000 to replace uh, if smashed. Uh, Daniel Banks says, I won't fly a flag. They are too closely associated with mindless nationalism, tribalism and ignorance. I would find it difficult to justify displaying any flag and Aaron Gray says he would fly the flag of Oceania with a second flag next to it reading war is peace freedom is slavery ignorance is strength Dany Cutter we put our Council of Europe flag up in our window on the 31st of January 2020 and there it will stay um, I mean it's a, a, just a, a fascinating debate isn't it uh, so here we are towards the end of the podcast. It's time once again for the Hall of Shame, our new home for rubbish ministers, political blather, things that annoy us generally. Let's start this week with uh, with a man who claimed to have proof that lockdown had created economic and social mayhem and colossal debt with no apparent health benefits. He went on to say that the government had been unscientific in its approach. It had created rules that have no real basis in common sense or science. What top boffin was this? What what egghead, what white-coated uh, uh, boffin was this? Oh, it, it was Tim Martin, the boss of Weatherspoons, who clearly has no ulterior motive for saying this, nor any proof. Uh, his scientific achievements do seem to begin and end with removing any sort of atmosphere from inside his terrible pumps, uh, or, or indeed replicating the atmosphere on Mars in Weatherspoons. Uh, no one can hear you scream. Boris Johnson is a frequent visitor to our Hall of Fame. The UK's successful vaccine rollout uh, was thanks to greed and capitalism, he told Tory MPs during an end-of-term Zoom meeting. Um, I mean, surely if we're talking about greed and capitalism, it's time to talk about the 37 billion quid that we've spaffed on private contractors for track and trace and what a raging success that has been. Uh, whereas the vaccine has been delivered by the NHS, which is state owned, and it's been made by scientists who've been working night and day for a year. Um, and I wonder how they feel uh, to be told that all of their efforts are because of greed and capitalism. I thought this was a great tweet from Rachel Clark, who's a palliative care doctor. She's the author of a book called Breathtaking, the NHS in a Time of Pandemic. She tweeted, I know some of the Oxford AstraZeneca team. They toiled night and day to save lives. They're selfless, dedicated university employees. My vaccine was given to me by a team of volunteers, cheerful, joyful, protecting their local community. 
greed. No, this is love. Uh, it's, it's, it's time to say a lack. It's Anne Widdicombe time. Uh, her Daily Express column this week starts uh, with these words. Brexit has saved thousands of British lives, and so has Boris. I instantly put the newspaper down at that point and went off to scream in the corner. Um, I, I can't really go into much of Anne Widdicombe after that. Um, she has, however, uncovered a massive scandal in the Scottish Parliament. Uh, never mind whether she has acted deceitfully and misled the Scottish Parliament, writes Anne Widdicombe. Never mind whether she's broken the ministerial code, ministerial code. Never mind whether she's torpedoed her great dream of Scottish independence. All I want to know is how has Nicola Sturgeon kept that hairstyle so immaculate through months of closed salons? Is her husband a dab hand with the scissors? Can she really cut the back of her own head? Or is she bending the rules? Ministerial statement, please. No, let's have an inquiry because, of course, there have been no politicians uh, in the UK government during this who appeared on national television uh, with neat hair. Um, to end where we began, the new visitor to the Hall of Shame this week is James Wilde. He was the North Norfolk MP that James Ball mentioned right at the top. He demanded that the new BBC Director General Tim Davey uh, it had to explain why there were no union flags pictured in the corporation's 268-page annual report. Now, the graphics and photos in the 260-page annual report turn out to be about programmes produced by the BBC, which is sort of what I was expecting in a, 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 an annual report from the BBC. And, you know, unless I'm wrong, producing programmes is about what the BBC is all about. And, if you want an annual report that is full of nice pictures of Union Jacks, James Wilde, then maybe the 268-page annual report from the Union Jack Manufacturers Association of Great Britain is where you should be looking. Um, two more things to note on that. We mentioned with James, the 2019 Conservative Manifesto, 68 pages, no uh, pictures of the Union Jack. And James Wilde's Twitter bio and James Wilde's website homepage no union flags in that. Incredible, isn't it? It's almost like they're making this stuff up as they go along. Well, that was the New European podcast. My thanks to Tracy King. My thanks to James Ball. There is no podcast next week because of Easter and also because I'm putting up a massive flag call outside my house. But we will be back on April the 9th. Please remember to rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Positive reviews mean a lot to us. Subscribe to The New European at theneweuropean.co.uk. For £10 a month, you get the printed edition, you get the e-edition each week. The first 200 new subscribers will get a signed copy of the latest volume of Alistair Campbell's Diaries. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. And follow The New European at The New European. And all there is left to say is, Alistair Campbell, please play your bagpipes. Here you go. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.